My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've never met you before, would love to meet you afterwards. If this is your first Tuesday, welcome. Make sure that you check in at the table out in the hall, and we'd love to get you connected to a small group of men. Uh, by design, what we do every Tuesday is we have large group teaching, and we break out into small groups, and Chad and I would both tell you that that is really what the most important part of this morning is that small group discussion. So make sure that you find a table that you can connect with. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to dive into John 9, so grab the sheet in front of you or a Bible. But before we do that, uh, let's pray together. I pray that the Lord would open our eyes to see uh, His Son, Jesus, and we're also going to pray for a couple of our brothers as well. Uh, so let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would be with us as we open Your Word. Father, we, um, we pray that... Um, what we are doing now, we would not take for granted. Uh, that we have um, the privilege, the opportunity, and the invitation to come uh, into your presence, to know that you are here now with us, uh, that you are work in and through the body of Christ and through the fellowship and brotherhood of these men. And Father, that we can come and to open your word and that your word would do its work in us. Father, we pray and we are um, we're thankful. And so we, we pray that this morning we would approach your word with humility and gratitude. Father, this morning we lift up Mike McMahon to you, uh, even now as he is undergoing uh, surgery, cataract surgery. We pray, Father, that you would be with the uh, physicians, the nurses, every aspect of that procedure, and that you, by these means that you would provide healing to him and relief in Jesus' name. Uh, Father, we lift up our dear brother Jay Hoffler to you. Uh, tomorrow as he undergoes gamma treatment, we pray, Father, that you would be with him. Father, we pray and, and give you gratitude, thanks um, for the relief that he has felt these past days. We pray that tomorrow would be an overwhelming success, that you would use this treatment. Again, we pray that you would steady and be with the hands of the physicians, the nurses, all that will care for him. We pray that you would bring healing to our brother Jay in Jesus' name. And now for us, we pray uh, that you would heal our hearts, that as you and we pray and come to you for physical healing, we pray for spiritual healing as well. We pray, Father, that you would heal our hearts, that we could have uh, faith. And may you fill us with the Holy Spirit this morning as we come to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John 9 is where we're going to be. John 9. Back in uh, 2006, uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. If you know anything about Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins is a, a scientist. He is an atheist. The thing that's always struck me about Dawkins and others uh, kind of like him is that if I were an atheist, I wouldn't care. Because if a to be an atheist means I don't believe in God, and so why even care about people who do? But for Richard Dawkins, he is what we call a militant atheist or an evangelical atheist. It's not that he is just an atheist. He wants you to be an atheist too. And that really is what uh, the God delusion is all about. It is a book that's trying to convert you to atheism. And even on his own website, he's got a, a little section of the website called Convert's Corner, where from reading the God delusion... You can come to the light. It's literally what it says. Come to the light. Uh, you can give your testimony as a new atheist convert. 
What's so interesting about this work is the, the chord that it has struck in our modern society, that people have literally come out of the woodwork saying how amazing and profound and meaningful the God delusion this book has been for them, to the point where now, as of just a few weeks ago, they have announced that it's going to be made into a play. So this book about being an atheist and about the, the harm that religion actually can offer a society is going to be made into a play. And that is going to be fascinating. I, I cannot even begin to imagine what kind of play that's going to be like. Dawkins is interesting because when you think about how passionate he is, how passionate he is about his atheism, and you might wonder, well, where does it come from? Now, if you get into his story, you realize a lot of it comes from his own baggage, the way he grew up. But that's not what he says. This is Dawkins' own words on why he is so passionate about being an atheist. He says, if all the evidence in the universe turned in favor of creationism, I would be the first to admit it. And I would immediately change my mind. As things stand, however, all available evidence, and there's a vast amount of it, favors evolution. It is for this reason and this reason alone that I argue for evolution with a passion that matches the passion of those who argue against it. My passion is based on evidence. Evidence. After all, Dawkins sees himself as a scientist, someone who bases his understanding of the world on evidence, empirical data, that which is physical, observable, which you can see, which you can touch. He is so resolute in this position that he once gave an interview for the Guardian uh, to an interviewer uh, named John Harris. And this is what he said. He said, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have been an atheist if he would have known what we know today. All right, do you understand what he's saying? Um, and this is classic. If you've ever read Richard Dawkins, this is just classic. It's about, um, and I want to be fair, uh, Listen, I, I have no doubt he's like 12 times smarter than me um, to, to an exponential power, right? But he, it's 90% it's trying to get a rise out of people. But what you see what he's saying, he's so um, committed. They're saying, look, what we know today, we, we are so much better off today, right? We, we see everything now. We have all of this evidence. Everything that we can see, of course, it doesn't exist. I remember thinking this way as well. Uh, maybe you have in your life. Maybe that describes you this morning. That to see it is to believe it. You ever said that? You ever heard it before? Seeing is believing. That I really just can't believe. I'm trying, but it's so hard for me to believe whether you're not a Christian or maybe you are a Christian. But you find yourself, in order to have faith, you really have to, you have to see some kind of evidence in order to actually believe. I was very much this way in college, uh, even though I had become a Christian at this point, I still was struggling with what is faith and how, how do I think about science? I was pre-med at the time, and I remember as a freshman sitting in Chemistry 101, and you learn about how molecules are put together, right, and how atoms are formed, and about neutrons and electrons and protons, and you learn in Chem 102 that none of that is true anymore because our thinking has changed. And then today, I mean, it's, it's 
been a few years now since college, but today I have no doubt that none of that is true either. Right? We used to, as scientists observing the world, be convinced that the world was flat. And it took having a new perspective to see that it's not flat, it's round. Now, I hope that's not news to any of you. I know that there's some flat earthers out there in the world. It's am- if you ever want to get lost, read about flat earthers. It's awesome. Um, what's the point? The point is, we are so convinced about what we know until we realize we had no idea. That, that actually, to be a scientist takes a little bit of, a, of faith. That even science, the empirical world, there's only so much that we can see, only so much that we can observe to provide explanation about the world around us. Fast forward just a few years in my college career, and I took a class called Genes, Ecology, and Evolution. A class about evolution. Because I really wanted to hear. I wanted to learn from the horse's mouth, right? What, what is evolution all about? Day one of the class, the professor gets up and begins to talk about the difference between micro and macro evolution. Now forgive the science lesson this morning. I know we're all tired. But hang with me for just a second. So microevolution is evolution within a species. In other words, the adaptation of, say, a fish over, over a lot of time to develop as a fish. Macroevolution is the evolution across species. In other words, it's a fish then became a monkey, right? That it's an explanation of how all of the world came to be from a single origin. That's macroevolution. This is what the professor said. We have evidence upon evidence supporting microevolution, the evolution within a species. But we do not have evidence for macroevolution. It's a theory, but it's a theory that sometimes you have to place your faith in in order to really see it come to be proved. Non-Christian scientist, evolutionary biologist, Texas A&M University saying you have to place your faith in science sometimes because there's just not enough evidence. This morning we're talking about the nature of faith. What does it mean to really believe? And how do you know that you have it? We're going to talk about being blind. The thing about being blind is if you're blind and truly blind, that you really can't see, have no perspective, then just like Richard Dawkins, you can think that you are the one who's helping the world to see what is true, when really you are the one that is so deeply blinded and you have no idea what truth really is. This morning we're talking about the nature of faith, the nature of blindness, the nature of sight. It's the story of the blind man in John chapter 9. It's one of the most complete encounters that we'll study throughout this series. It's over 40 verses long. We'll look not only at this blind man, but we'll look at the disciples who witnessed this miracle. We'll look at uh, the Pharisees who questioned this miracle. And we'll look at the parents of the blind man who want nothing to do with this miracle. We'll look first at the physical blindness that this man had, and then secondly, we'll look at the spiritual blindness that all of us have, just as people who are in desperate need of the light of Jesus Christ to open our eyes. So first, I want to look at the idea of physical blindness. You see this time and time again throughout the Bible. John 9 verse 1 is where I want to begin. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? A couple things I want to point out here as we begin. The first thing is I want you to notice that it says that Jesus saw the blind man. The blind man did not come up to Jesus. Jesus is the one who went to him. Not only that, but he saw him, it's pointed out. And that seems like a very simple statement. But you see that and compare it to what the disciples do with this blind man. Jesus sees him for who he is. The disciples look at him, and they want to use him as the opportunity to have a a theological debate. They see him, not with eyes of compassion, but really as an object, an object lesson. And they ask him, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? In other words, do you see what they're getting at? Here's a man born from blind. blind, I mean, blind from birth. I'm tired too. Blind from birth. So he's blind from birth. And they assume that he or his parents must have done something sinful in order for this calamity to have fallen upon him. The assumption in the back of their minds is not unlike karma. You know what karma is, right? Bad things happen to bad people. It's why a lot of times one of the big questions you'll hear people ask about faith, they'll say, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Because the assumption is, well, bad things only happen to bad people. That in the back of our minds as, as human beings, we kind of assume that karma must be true. That the suffering in the world exists because people deserve it. But you see how Jesus enters this in. And it's not unique just to the disciples, by the way. If you know the story of Job, a godly man who has everything taken away from him. Every possession, his family, everything, his health. And his three friends trying to give him advice, right? And you see that their advice is terrible. And one of them coming up to him and asking the very same thing. Job, what what did you do? What terrible thing did you do to make God this angry at you? That's the only explanation. We see here Jesus gives a different explanation entirely. Verse 3, it says, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's an amazing statement. On one hand, I think what Jesus is saying, which is true for all things, that you must recognize that God is sovereign even in suffering, even in pain, even in circumstance. And while it might be true that there is suffering in the world because of sin in general, in other words, because there was a fall, Now suffering has entered the world. That to say that an earthquake happened in Haiti because the people in Haiti are worshipers of idols misses the point entirely. It misses the point entirely because it recognizes, look, we are all sinful. We are all idolaters. And because all have fallen short of the glory of God, there is suffering in this world that all of us, all of us, Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian will encounter, I have no doubt that there is suffering right now, even in this room, among believers. And so the hard truth, the not very popular truth, is that bad things happen to both good and bad people. But more than that, what we need to begin to recognize is what Jesus says, is that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's that verse that we love to quote all the time, that God works all things together for good. Both blessing and hardship 
And that good is for the salvation of his people. That he would bring his people, all of his people, to saving faith. And this is going to be absolutely true for this blind man. Verse 4, he goes on, he says, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, what's Jesus talking about? He's not just talking about the actual day. He's not just saying, we better, get, better do this now because <laughs> the sun's going down um, and this day is going to be over. He's talking about his ministry, right? While it's light, while it's day, while he is on earth, we must be at work. But night's coming. In other words, there's, there's going to be a time when Jesus is crucified, when he is resurrected and he will ascend to heaven and no longer be at work in the way that he is right here in this moment. As long as I am the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Just a chapter before that Jesus declares that. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This blind man has spent a lifetime walking in darkness, literally. Physical darkness, he cannot see. And Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has come to him to heal him. What does this healing look like? I want to talk about physical healing for just a second. Verse 6. It says, Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground, and he made mud with the saliva. It's a very um, honest, very earthy moment in his ministry. Right? He, t- he literally spits on the ground, he makes mud with the saliva, and he anoints the man's eyes with the mud. And then he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed, and he came back seeing. The question you should be asking is, why did Jesus perform the miracle this way? First, I mean, why, did, why do it this way at all? Why not, uh, I mean, it's Jesus. Why not just say, you're healed? Why, why, why use these physical means at all? Why use something as um, earthy, literally as the earth, as, as mud, as spit? Why do it that way? Well, I want to offer just a couple explanations to you. The first is that the miraculous. Yes, God can work in all ways that He wants. But so often we assume that miracles mean that He's working outside of the physical world. But you must recognize if he's the king of kings and lord of lords, then he can, the entire, all of creation is at his disposal. That he actually can work miracles through the physical world around him. In this moment, he's using the physical world, mud and saliva. I would submit to you, he does the same thing today, right? He uses our physical world in order to work miracles. Can he work outside of that? He absolutely can, but do not miss the ways in which he has given us physical means in order for him to work miracles in our life. But the second, I think more important, is I think it's pointing back to something. The idea of dirt providing newness of life. Genesis 2. There God is, and he creates Adam. How does he create Adam? By grabbing the earth. Out of dust, he forms Adam and makes him in his image. Here he is again, taking the earth and providing new creation, right? New life, new, a new work in this man to where he is now physically healed. He is made different. Again, this is a man who didn't become blind. He's been blind his entire life. 
has no even um, concept of what sight might be like. And in an instant, we're told that he went, he washed, and he came back seeing. This is so amazing of a miracle that we're told, verses 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that his neighbors, the people that knew him best, did not believe it was the same person. They'd grown up around him. They'd known him since he was a little kid. They'd known him as a little blind boy, now grown up into a blind man, and they think, that's not the same guy. They're dumbfounded at the power of this miracle. And what you you find in the Gospels, and really the Bible, is that, but particularly think about the Gospels themselves, Jesus, healing a blind person is the most common miracle you see in the work of Jesus' ministry. Out of all the other miracles, that category, healing a blind person, happens more times. And even this metaphor in the Bible is something that you see in Isaiah being foretold, that the blind will see. So the question we should be asking ourselves as readers, as hearers of this story now 2,000 years later, as people who none of us are blind physically, is what are we needing to see spiritually about this story? And what does it mean for us? And that's what you see happen next. It's not enough that we consider the physical blindness of this, of this man. We must consider the spiritual blindness. The church fathers, Augustine and others, uh, believe that that was the whole point of this miracle. That this miracle is about not the physical blindness of this man, but that every single one of us is also blind from birth, spiritually speaking. That from birth, we do not have eyes to see. We do not have eyes to see who God is and what He has done. We do not have eyes to see Christ. And we see this first in the blind man, we see this in his parents, and we see this in the Pharisees. I want you to look at uh, chapter, or John chapter 9, verse 13. It should be right there on your page. And first, I want to look at the blind man. The idea of spiritual blindness, not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness in this man. It says that they brought this man to the Pharisees. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus healed him. And so the Pharisees have a problem with this, right? <laughs> no work's supposed to be happening on the Sabbath, according to them, uh, including any kind of miracle, any kind of work, any kind of healing. So they're questioning this man. They're questioning what Jesus has done. They come to him, verse 16, and they say, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others of them say, Well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So there's division within them. You know, they see he's got to be a sinner. He's broken the Sabbath. Others say, Well, how could he do this if he is? And so they ask the blind man, verse 17, they say, Well, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And notice what he says He's a prophet. In other words, what I want you to notice about this blind man is that though he now physically can see, spiritually he's still blind. Spiritually he's still blind, and this makes this very unique among the miracles. What you see time and time again is when Jesus heals someone, quite immediately they come to faith. Or Jesus will say, it's because of your faith that you are now healed. But here is this blind man, he's just been healed, And yet he still does not truly see Jesus Christ for who he is. Here are the Pharisees, they're asking him, well, what do you think? And he says, well, he's got to be a prophet, right? 
I don't think he's the Christ. I don't think he's the Messiah. I'm not calling him Lord. I'm not even calling him rabbi. I'm just call, he's, he, must be, he must be some kind of spokesperson for God, but I don't know what kind. He must be a prophet. He still has blind eyes, spiritually speaking. But this blindness looks really one of two ways. And there's, this is a very broad brush, but I think you can see this kind of blindness in all of us. You can see this blindness take its root in us, and that we're blinded by what we think of others and how others think of us. And this is what we see in his parents. They are blinded by their fear of man. They're blinded by their fear of what others think. And so these Jews, these Pharisees, cannot believe what has been done. And so they finish their questioning of the blind man, and they go and interrogate his parents. Because what they want to do is they want to disprove that this man was actually blind from birth. They want to show some kind of inaccuracy in what's happened. So they come to his parents, and they question his parents about the blind man. Verse 19, they say, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? I want you to hear what his parents say. His parents say, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Now, you can stop there and think, well, that seems honest enough. Um, you know, all they can say for certain is, yeah, it's our son. <laughs> we know that. And yes, he was born blind, but we don't know what happened. But notice what they say next. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. In other words, they want nothing to do with what just happened. Now, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You're a parent, and I know many of you are fathers, and you have a child who is born blind. Imagine the heartache that that must have brought to them immediately. Imagine the hardship that they have faced for a lifetime trying to care for this child and then a young man and now a man who is forced to beg in order to survive. And then you not only hear, but you see with your own eyes that this human being, your own son, after a lifetime of blindness, now can see. What do you think that would do for you? What kind of joy, what kind of awe what, might, what emotions would that fill you with? And what, what you see in them is fear. They want nothing to do with this miracle because they're afraid. And John tells us why they're afraid. John, verse 22, John tells us his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. They were blinded by fear. Fear of man, fear of what others would think of them, fear of being kicked out of the synagogue. That wasn't just a religious fear, by the way, but to be kicked out of the synagogue in those days would be kicked out of society of itself. You could no longer do business with people. You were completely ostracized from the community. They were afraid of what would happen to them if they told the truth. But this blindness sometimes is not just in others and how others think about it. This blindness can come from ourselves, right? The blindness that comes from self. We see this in the Pharisees. They're so prideful, so full of themselves. 
We see this time and time again in their questioning. I just want to look at their second interrogation. So they question the man first. They question his parents. Then they go back to the blind man a second time. Verse 24. We're told for a second time they come to the man. This is what they say to him. Verse 24. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man, that's Jesus. Give glory to God. We know that Jesus, the one who healed you, he is a sinner. Notice what the man says. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So again, the blind man, spiritually speaking, he's still blinded. Whether he's a sinner, I I don't know. All I can tell you, I was blind, now I can see. So they go back and forth. You see this man begins to be um, pretty forward with them. Verse 27, I love this. He goes, you've already asked me these things. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they revile him and they say, well, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as to this man, we do not know where he comes from. And notice what the the blind man says, the man who was blind. He says, why, this is amazing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he's opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So there he is. He's now coming back after the Pharisees, still not a believer. He goes on, verse 33, says, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, verse 34, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. In other words... The thing that his parents were so afraid of just happened to him. It's the first example of persecution, actually, that we see in the Gospel of John. And yet he's not even a Christian. He's just standing up for what he knows to be happened. He's not afraid of the Pharisees. He just wants to tell the truth. Why? Because the truth has happened to him. He just doesn't know how to explain the truth. He doesn't know what the truth means. All he can tell you is that at one point he was born blind. Now he can see. But he still has no idea what it means. So how does the story end? If it ended there, I would tell you that it would be only half of a miracle. That really the the ultimate need of this man has not yet been met. And so by God's grace, by Christ's grace, verse 35, Jesus comes to him again. Verse 35, Jesus heard that he had been thrown out of the synagogue. He found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? There's a few things I want to point out to you that I think are very important about this second encounter. First thing is, this is now the second time that Jesus has sought this man out. The first time Jesus sees him and heals him by no asking of this blind man. The second time Jesus hears that he's been thrown out of synagogue and he goes and finds him. The second thing I want to point out is this is the first time that this man has ever actually seen Jesus. Because if you see, if you remember, he was blind. The first time he was blind. And what did Jesus say? Well, he put mud on his eyes. He said, go wash. So the blind man, still not healed, left Jesus' presence and went and washed the pool of Siloam. Well, Jesus was gone at that point. He's actually never seen Jesus with his own eyes. So Jesus has come to him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, he answers, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, 
and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And what you see over these 40 verses is the slow progression of faith. It begins at his physical healing, when he's been given the physical ability to see. But what we also see is from that moment, the Lord has been opening up his heart, that spiritually speaking, he can, he's beginning to see. And it's a slow progression. We see this in his statements. Verse 11, the blind man calls Jesus the man. The man Jesus. It might not seem like a big deal to you, but it's a slight, right? He's just a man, right? He's not the son of God. He's just this man, the man Jesus. Verse 17, the blind man calls him a prophet. Well, he must be from God, so he must be a prophet. Verse 33, he then says, well, he must be a man of God, right? Based on what he's done to me, he's healed me. He must be from God. He must be a man of God. Verse 36 He must be the son of man. And then finally, verse 38, I believe, Lord, and his faith comes through worship. I believe, Lord, and he worshiped him. He worshiped Jesus. It took time for this man's eyes, spiritually speaking, to see. And the reality is the true is the same of us. It's the same for us. Some of you this morning might be here and... While you might be trying to understand who Jesus is, you've not placed your faith in him. You want to see evidence, some kind of proof. What you fail to realize is all the evidence in the world is all around you. Sometimes it's not things you can empirically see or touch, but to recognize that the miracle that exists in every single man in this room has been changed by the glory of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The miracle that resides in us who've been transformed by His grace. But for those of us who have been transformed by His grace, we find ourselves at times being blinded, right? Being blinded to what we know to be true, what we know to be true even in us, and yet we, we doubt Him. and We doubt that He can still work in those ways. That even though we've come to saving faith, we doubt that He can still sanctify us. We doubt that he can resurrect a marriage that's been torn apart or to make a business deal that's gone bad actually happen in a way that would be honoring and fruitful to those who are involved. Although we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we find ourselves blinded by our own spiritual pride or blinded by the fear of others. We need Christ to open our eyes, to recognize that this is a lifetime slowly being able to see each and every day with new eyes the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And that daily to pray that as Christ opens our eyes, we can see him for who he is. The one who heals us, both body and soul. The one who redeems us. The one who has saved us from the pit of hell. The one who died and rose again for us, for you and for me. So let me pray for us as I go to our tables. Let's pray together that as we open his word and discuss these things, that God would open our eyes, that we'd be able to see him for who he is in his word. Father, we do pray this, this very thing, that like the blind man, we see ourselves very much in him. We see ourselves, even the Pharisees and in his parents. We pray, Father, that you would not allow this blindness to overtake us even this morning, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would heal our spiritual blindness. 
that as we open up your word, that it would pierce us through, that it would change us and conform us into the image of your Son, that you would redeem us, that we would see the light of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.